Sweet tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new sweet tarts gummies fruity splits. A uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet tarts, dare to combine. Sergeant and Mrs. Smith, you are going to love this house. Is that a tub in the kitchen? There's no field manual for finding the right home, but when you do, USAA Homeowners Insurance can help protect it the right way. Restrictions apply. Hey everybody, I'm going to start this week's roundup off with a fun announcement that for a limited time only, just two weeks, I'm going to be selling a shirt that is dedicated to our battle against lag. That's right, as silly as that might sound, the shirt is going to feature myself and Arturo Sanchez making a funny face and me flipping the bird. Just as a a big F you to all of the people who have attacked us over the years for doing things like printing our measurements and showing people what we've learned about latency. I'm positive this is going to offend and annoy a bunch of people, and that's totally fine. I'm sure the people that get annoyed are not the ones that have ever had to deal with anything like this. And my way of dealing with this stuff is to have some fun with it and be silly. So with all the love and respect to everybody listening, I don't care if I sell one of these or a million. I wanted to have this shirt out there. It's obviously an X-Files spoof. Instead of the truth is out there, the lag is real, and we have some very fun stuff on there, like, you know, the RGB Illuminati and... Just Art and I having some fun with this one because we've both had to deal with a ton of crap over the years just by telling the truth about things. Art especially late, uh, lately has had to deal with it. So I wanted to have some fun. And also all of the profits of this shirt are going to fund more of Art's research onto lowering latency of PC setups so that if people choose to, they could have fighting tournaments that are even lower latency than you could imagine. And we are getting to the point where we're almost at CRT levels of low latency here. Display technology has a little bit more to come, but point is, if you want to have some fun and raise your middle fingers collectively in the air at everybody who throws hate for anybody who prints scientific results on things, then consider picking up this t-shirt. One run only, never going to make it again, and this one's for us, all of my fellow nerds that get what we're trying to do, get the joke, and you know, if you don't get it and you're offended, that's fine too, there's nothing I could do about it. First up, Rich Whitehouse has just posted a public release of his Atari Jaguar emulator that now features Atari Jaguar CD support. And this is a very big deal for Jaguar fans, or even people mildly interested in the platform, because this is the first time that you're going to be able to play through the retail Jag CD library with emulation. And while, yes, there aren't a ton of games and they're not the world's greatest games, just being able to experience it and finding the hidden gems of the ones that you do like is pretty awesome because up until now you would have to find working original hardware or of course you could use the retro hq game drive but that compatibility still isn't up to 100 percent on that Uh, james is still working on that by the way so don't worry about that but right now for free you could just download this emulator figure out where to find some isos and then just try some of these games out and really form your own opinions on them 
Now, when I first uh, posted this, it was only a release for Patreon subs, just so that people could go through and test for bugs and make sure everything's ironed out. And of course, I really always respect the whole, I'm going to release something a little bit early for subscribers and then publicly shortly after, which is exactly what Rich did. It was less than two weeks that the world got to see this for free. So I just wanted to bring, bring that up again, just to politely remind everybody that it's really hard to make these things. So if you're a fan of them and you like doing stuff like this and you like seeing this kind of work get out there, please spread the word about everybody's Patreon or support service who really works on these things and has them. And if you're not in the ability to support or you're not in a position with the ability to support, that's totally cool too. Please just spread the word because I'm sure you have a few friends that are and would love to see more features added and really just support the development of awesome stuff like this. So have at it, download the big PMU, the big PMU. I still don't know how to say it. I don't think it matters. I think as long as you support Rich's work and you enjoy the emulator, then I don't really think he cares how you pronounce it. So download it, have at it, enjoy some JAG CD games, and see if you could find some hidden gems in there that you really enjoy. Datadiscs is now selling the Outrun and Streets of Rage 3 soundtracks on vinyl again. I guess they did repressings of both because they were both pretty popular soundtracks. So if you've been waiting to get one of these and you don't want to pay scalper prices, now is absolutely the time to pick one up. I personally own the Outrun, Outrun Afterburner and Space Area versions, and I thought all three were absolutely worth every penny, especially because the Outrun is like less than 30 bucks too, so that's a great deal on it. So if you're interested in collecting vinyl, and especially listening to vinyl for video game soundtracks, Data Discs has some of the best out there, and I mean, I, I love the Outrun soundtrack, so I was very happy, even though I already own one, I was very happy to see this pop back up for sale, so that way, if you wanted one yourself, you could be able to pick it up and not have to resort to scalpers. So, thanks to Data Discs for continuing to make these, and definitely check out Crystal's posts if you want more info. This week's roundup is once again sponsored by JLC PCB, and this week I wanted to try to finish up that SCART Cleaner PCB assembly, and I really went through and had a bunch of friends go through each item on the board to try to figure out what was wrong. And we figured out a couple of potential things, and I spent hours, probably a full day, removing parts and swapping them from an older working revision, and I just couldn't figure out why the sync voltage was so low. We tried everything. We tried moving parts over, swapping things out. I mean, really, every part that could have been swapped was. So we threw the towel in and <laughs> tried another design of it. We just did another redesign. We changed the VGA connector because my whole idea of having that a plug style connector was kind of failing anyway. So since we needed to do a redesign, we just kind of do it, did it that way. So now let's just try again with a new set of files because that's definitely one thing I've learned over the years with any of the PCB assembly services. Maybe the problem's them, maybe the problem's you, but sometimes just making some changes, regenerating the files and trying for another assembly is the fix for it, which I don't really get it. I'm sure somebody smarter than me probably would. So let's re-upload the file and see if we make it all the way through this time. Okay, as usual, we're just gonna go to jlcpcb.com, log into our account, upload the Gerber file and wait for that to pop up. For this build, there's really nothing custom that we need to do. We just leave everything as default. We don't need any crazy layered boards or different colors. The only thing to do is add the PCB assembly at the bottom of the page. I'm selecting a quantity of five because that's how many I want to make. And that's basically it. 
We also want to take a look at the file itself, and it looks like everything's there. We see everything. Um, all the parts seem to be there. We just need to add the bill of materials and CPL pick and place file. And by the way, it looks like JLCPCB is updating their website because it didn't ask me to add the name again, and it looks a little bit different. So that's kind of cool that we got a preview beforehand. Now, unfortunately, it says only eight parts were detected in the bomb, but the bill of materials has 12 parts in it. So I'm not really sure what's up with that. There's also two parts that are definitely in stock at LCSC that it said is not in stock here. So let's just kind of load up the 3D model and it looks like a bunch of parts are missing. So the 3D model has been wrong in the past. It showed parts as rotated in the model, but it, they arrived fine. However, parts missing makes me nervous and you can't see the PCB. So those are probably the parts that were missing from the bomb, the two switches and the VGA port. So I'm going to have to get with JLC PCB and ask them what went wrong with this. And hopefully we can follow up next week and finally get this product finished. I'm not sure whose fault it is, but it just always seems to be something, huh? Next up is a mini review of a two channel receiver that has a whole bunch of HDMI inputs, arc support, analog audio inputs, and even has multiple zones available. And I absolutely thought it was awesome. So if you don't care at all about two-channel audio or if that very quick blurb was really all you cared about, then feel free to skip to the next section. If you do want to hear a little bit more about this amp and how it pertains to 2.0 audio setups of both analog and digital, please stick with me. But I always try to be respectful of people's time. I'm sure I'm going to talk a lot about this because I, I really like it. So just check the timestamps everywhere that it is that you listen to skip to the next section if you don't care. So to bring you back to the start here, a while back, I really re-found re two-channel audio and, you know, rediscovered how much I loved it, especially for certain scenarios. So my upstairs setup was my OLED TV with a Pioneer amp that I was using that was absolutely great except for two things. One, the quality was excellent but it wasn't as good as that NAD316B amp that I had. But the real problem I had with it is the lack of CEC control options, which is very common in all amps. So no shade thrown to Pioneer for that. But basically, I only want that amp on when I want it on. So if I'm watching a crappy YouTube video like this one, where audio doesn't matter at all, I want to use my TV speakers. And then if I flip over to something like a TV show, a movie, or a digital foundry video with good audio that I want to turn the amp on. And I want this for two reasons. One, because it's just quieter and there's not as much bass response, so I don't make as much noise. But also because when you do that, you really feel a difference when you switch over to the amp. So it's not just that you're getting the better quality audio, but you really notice it because you're going from crappy audio to good audio, but you're noticing it when it matters. So that's a very strong opinion I have. There's a million reasons why you don't want to use that. Your TV speakers are blown. You just want a fully automated setup. You only watch TV when you want good quality audio or that TV. So I get it. But for me personally, that's the choice that I want to make. So to have that Pioneer amp always turn on when my TV turns on, there really aren't good options around that. I could manually set a bunch of settings in my TV and the amp every time I want to use it. I could have it hard powered off. I could just put an AC switch, but then I wouldn't be able to use it for airplay to have it automatically come on. And I could try to do something like an HDMI manual switch to leave it technically unplugged, 
but then I have to walk over and press the button, and then if you leave the button on amp mode, it'll automatically come on the next time you turn it on. So I really was on the lookout for another two-channel amp. And I had known about the Marantz NR1200. I believe somebody in the comments, I think it was a Patreon subscriber actually, had recommended it. But at the time, and at the time of that video, it was 800 bucks. And that amp just dropped to 600, which is still definitely more than I could afford for a secondary amp, but I was dying to know how it performed and what I could do to get the CEC options working. And overall, the sound quality was definitely better than the Pioneer, but still not as good as that NAD amp that I loved so much, the 316B. And it's one of these things where if you're in a New York City apartment, you're not going to hear the difference. But if you're in a quiet place in the middle of the burbs, you probably would, assuming your ears are decent. And I still rate the Pioneer excellent for the money, because that's really the key here. Anybody could get better audio if they drop more money. But I, the Pioneer was excellent, and if all of the features worked the way I wanted them to, I wouldn't have gone looking for another amp. But the Marantz was definitely a step up. It is a two-zone amp, so you could add two extra speakers. Still only two-channel, left and right, but I assume when you turn on the other zone, you lose half the power from the main zone. So that is a pretty cool feature, though. You could have it set to both zones when you're listening to music, and then just one when you're watching TV. It had a ton of HDMI inputs and features, including automatic low latency modes. So if you wanted to, you could treat this as your main hub for everything. But for me personally, I like the automation of ARC, audio return channel through HDMI for all of the reasons that I explained. And because after the amp is on, you could use whatever remote you are already using to change the volume. So right now I was able to figure out how to get this amp integrated by turning off every single HDMI control feature except ARC. And uh, that is in the video HDMI menu of this amp. And now I have to manually turn it on when I want to use it and manually turn it off when I'm done. But as soon as I just hit that power button on the remote or on the amp itself, my Apple TV remote now automatically switches to changing that volume. The amp automatically connects and it works exactly as I hoped. Funny, I had a hard time figuring out how to change the HDMI options because it was a little unclear if ARC would still work or not if you change or if you turned off control. I talked to Marantz about this and they said it couldn't be done. So Marantz, you failed miserably for customer support. I just proved that it can be done. Anyway, uh, so it's been working great so far. The audio quality is definitely a small step up from the Pioneer. Not quite as good as that NAD amp, but the features are just if you need analog and digital, unless you absolutely love analog audio and that's the predominant use of your amp, I would say get this one because you have everything built in. At 600 bucks, it's the same price, if not cheaper, than the NAD amp in a very good DAC. Plus, you get multiple HDMI inputs, ARC, AirPlay, everything built right in. And it's really been working absolutely great so far. I have a little YouTube short showing exactly how it's working. I have pictures here embedded. There's pictures on their website, but I have a higher resolution one embedded right in this post that shows you all of the inputs and all of the features. Um, 
Wi-Fi worked fine on it, which is something that I'm so picky about because I, I've part of one of my jobs was to make devices fail under Wi-Fi to test for uh, security and just for you know overall how robust the system was. So I could usually break any Wi-Fi device pretty easily, and this one played music without any hiccups. So I'm, if I keep the stamp, I'm going to leave it connected on Wi-Fi just to see. That alone is a pretty big deal for me. Um, and I, I mean, that's basically it. I, I just, I think the amp was awesome. I wanted to share it with everybody. Yes, there's an affiliate link because I'm not stupid. I'm <laughs> like, I gotta make a living. But the real reason for me talking about this and doing the social media posts was because I genuinely think that if you really need a two channel audio amp, or if, like I said in that surround video, you wanna start with two awesome speakers and a very good amp, and then slowly and eventually upgrade your setup, this is probably the amp you should get. If you could find that Pioneer one used and you don't mind arc control on all the time, that is awesome and you could save some money. If you really are focused on analog audio and anything digital, you could just have a DAC or something else. The NAD is still the king for me. I have never in my life heard a $500 amp that sounded like that. Once again, course you could drop more money and have a better sounding amp but for that price point i still think it's the best but this comes really close and it's loaded with features for me personally it's just um the only thing for me was it had to work right with arc or otherwise it was not worth spending the money to upgrade funny enough i've wasted hours because my apple tv remote stopped controlling ir it was the weirdest thing i've never had this happen before but i thought it was a problem with the amp and eventually when i unhooked everything and it still wasn't controlling my tv's volume i reset the apple tv i updated the firmware on my tv nothing i then because i have two apple tvs one uh, in the projector and then one for my living room tv i went and paired the remote with the projector apple tv and it worked fine again put the projector one upstairs that worked fine and then i switched them back and it worked fine again. So somehow I crashed my Apple TV's remote in testing this, crashed the IR output, but pairing it with another device and pairing it back fixed that. So I just, I wanted to say that both because hopefully my fellow nerds could laugh at that. Um, I don't I don't think that was a mistake. So maybe you just laugh at that incident, but also in case that ever happens to you, I, I wanted to let you know. Um, and also let me know if you'd like to buy the little Pioneer amp, because if I do end up keeping this, which it's been performing great all week, so I probably am, but I can't really afford it, so I'm going to sell a bunch of stuff to pay that credit card off. Uh, but so far, so good on my setup, and I really do think that it's worth your time, at the very least, listening to me ramble for 10 minutes, but also check out the YouTube short, check out the written review, which is basically just this, and really look to see for yourself. And if you decide to buy it, retrorgb.link forward slash Marantz NR1200, because uh, hopefully I could have enough of you click through that to, to take the brunt of that big payment off. Pre-orders are now open for a vinyl version of the Super Dodgeball soundtrack for the NES, and it'll have three different versions available. Power Shot Orange, Namanyayo Blue, and Classic Black. So if you're a fan of the soundtrack and you want a pretty cool collector's item and have a choice of what color you'd want it in, definitely check out Crystal's post. It's available from multiple sellers for $36, and it's scheduled to release in May of this year. Lon Seidman just did a live stream and then shortened review about the tininess, which is a reimagining of the NES motherboard using brand new parts, but the original CPU and PPU to allow for 
pretty much 100% accuracy to the original. And overall, Lon liked it. The cartridge slot was really, really snug, so I think that was a concern of his. And Famicom expansion audio did work. I don't think Lon had the time to run MD4EA audio testing, so we got to get Lon set up with an MD4EA test kit. Um, I think he would love to nerd out with that as well, but it seems like a cool thing, but it's 240 bucks if you want the original, uh, if you want it completed with the original chips, and 220 if you want clone chips. And those were used in like the Famicom clone consoles, and they could be very accurate too, so you could save a couple of bucks. So this seems very cool. I just kind of don't get it. And I need, to, I need to preface this with a bunch of compliments and my own humility here before I continue. But I think products or projects like the OpenTendo um, that Red Herring, I'm sorry if I'm getting the name wrong, was working on. I think stuff like that's amazing because it's a couple of things. First, it's a recorded history and a really good archive of what this hardware is, but it also would allow for a drop-in replacement for the original. So if you end up with a motherboard where the board is broken, capacitors leaked, and it just destroyed it all, but you still have two good working CPU and PPUs, you could grab one of those, probably have to hand assemble it, but I think a few people are, are offering those pre-made, but you could install that and have a completely authentic original experience, both in the tactile experience, putting your cartridge in and all that stuff, but also in the accuracy part of it. And so I think that is awesome. And while, yes, I always would love to see people fork that project to add new features to it, to integrate, um, you know, an easy way to get Tim's RGB kit in or to, to build your own HDMI kit, whatever. I'm a nerd. It's my job to, to encourage people to do fun stuff like that. I still think the original project is absolutely amazing. But what what exactly is the tininess? So it's not an original tactile experience. It's just an accurate original gaming experience. But for that same amount of money, you could get a retro USB AVS that automatically outputs HDMI, whereas the tininess is just a recreation of the original. You only get composite video output on this thing, nothing else. And also, you can get a D10 Nano a RAM chip and a USB hub for a tiny bit more than that. Yes, I know there's always a troll that likes to remind me that it's hard to get a DE10, whatever. Have some patience. You could totally get it. And now you could have the NES and a whole bunch of other things for basically the same price. So I'd like to ask what I'm missing. And if the answer is, this is just a new way to do the same thing that's different. That's a high five answer. I love it. That's cool for you. I just personally don't understand because I either want something that offers a bunch of cool features that I would not have expected, or I want the original experience, something like the OpenTendo drop-in motherboard, a completely refurbished original. So I just, because of the price, I don't really understand who the target market is on something like this. And I would love to be wrong. I would love to have you all explain to me how I'm a moron and I completely forgot to look at it from a different perspective. That happens at least a couple times a year and I learn something and sometimes I, I apologize if I came down too harsh on it. I just don't understand it. So I would love to hear your thoughts. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. It doesn't really matter. It's a choice, which is always a good thing. So if this is something that you think you want, go for it. Just know that the cartridge slot's going to be really snug uh, and you're going to have 
a composite video output that's equal to or better than the probably the best revisions NES because Lon did say the output seemed very clean not like that incredibly noisy rev Famicom I have or some of the toaster NESs have some pretty noisy motherboards so you're going to get something that performs well it just it's not an original experience from the tactile point of view and you don't really get anything new from it and I don't think there's any room to install an sRGB kit either so kind of an interesting one but interested to hear your thoughts eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Thoughts on it. QWERTY Moto just made a 3D printed case for his RG Bench device, which if you don't know what that is, stick around. I'll go through it at, when I'm done with this. But first, the case itself is available to download and print yourself if you would like. And by the time this goes live, this should probably be available on QWERTY's Tindy store as well. I almost said Tinder store. Sorry, QWERTY. <laughs> um, so you could purchase it if you want to support the original designer or if you have your own 3D printer, just print it right up. But I, I think this is an awesome idea. I'm really happy to see this because I love my RG bench. I use it all the time, but I ended up putting the top plexi cover on the bottom to prevent shorts. And I just, I think an all enclosed method of, of keeping it safe is probably the best way to go about doing it. Now, Onto the RG Bench itself, just a quick reminder, if you don't, if you already own one or you don't care, skip to the next section. But the RG Bench is a device that allows you to interface SCART, RCA, meaning composite or component, VGA, and S-Video all directly into a scope via a VGA to BNC cable. So rather than having to make your own breakout devices and poke around with a probe, you can plug your devices into this, plug this into your scope, and it's just a very easy way to access those signals. There is also switchable 75 ohm termination on there. So if you do something like I did the other day, and you have your scope plugged into your monitor, and then you're getting weird readings, unplug your monitor from the scope, throw on the 75 ohm termination on the RG bench, and now you've removed one point of failure from your test setup. So that really saved my butt when I was testing the, uh, the SCART cleaner last week or two weeks ago, because I thought there was a problem with it. It turned out it was my monitor. So this is basically the device that I completely gushed over in my $30 scope video, and rightfully so. This sucker saves me so much time. So if you just needed that $30 scope just to test some occasional signals, you respectfully, you probably don't need this. But if you find yourself testing once a month, 
different kind of cables like SCART VGA or component, then I would absolutely call this a must buy and something that you need to pair with any of your scopes. The fancy Rigel, the cheap $30 one, either way, this really was a massive help. So thanks to QWERTY for making it. You could buy that. Um, you could buy it right from the links in the post. And hopefully by the time this uh, podcast goes live, you should be able to purchase the case directly from him if you would like. The Orpheus 2 sound card is now available to purchase. This is the ultimate new retro ISA sound card that we've been talking about that offers just a ton of different features and add-ons. Things like the Yamaha OPL3 FM capabilities, an internal wavetable header for added MIDI stuff, and even having external options with PC MIDI MPU 401 features, stuff like the Roland SC55. So basically, if you are a fan of music and audio on classic computers. This is the thing to get. It's very expensive at 400 bucks, but it's kind of one of those you get what you pay for scenarios. If you just need audio coming out of your classic PC and your original audio card died, this is not for you. And I mean that with, with love, but on the flip side, if you want every audio option you could imagine and you know everything that you could have ever wanted out of a retro PC's audio setup, this is the thing for you and you could probably save money anyway by having it all in one so any of your questions or if you want a much better overview than i'm doing definitely check out vanessa's post the links on where to order everything are right in there and definitely if you are a fan of classic pcs you got to read vanessa's post even if you decide it's not for you this is something that will probably get you very excited um and it's just a very cool example of what could be done today using older style technology for older computers i recently posted a really fun podcast with banjo guy ollie where we talked about everything from music to surfing to restoring arcade machines and basically everything in between but this was just a whole lot of fun this was one of these conversations that started because i had seen ollie's name pop up again and i just thought you know i've been listening to his music for years why not just see if he wants to do an interview and then strangely enough like a day later he popped up in one of my live streams and i was like oh shit i was just about to email you perfect so we ended up having a chat and this is absolutely one of those grab a beer or coffee or whatever slide over your chair and hang out with us and hopefully you'd uh, you enjoyed it as much as we did because this was just a whole bunch of fun and i'm really looking forward to doing another one with ollie at some point so as always they're available everywhere i don't really care and i mean that with love i don't really care where you listen to these i'm just very happy that you do so any podcast service any video service download the audio directly to your phone or whatever and listen to it whatever works for you is cool uh, i'm just really glad i get to share these and hopefully Hopefully you all will give it a chance and, uh, and give it a listen because I think more people would probably enjoy this than you'd expect. Even if you're like, oh, I don't want to listen about banjo stuff. I don't even like the banjo. Don't worry. It's not all about that. It's, it's actually very little banjo-esque, but hopefully you'll still enjoy it even if you're a fan of the banjo. But anyway, just check out the links for, and uh, just search for Retro RGB Ollie anywhere you find podcasts to listen. Now it's time for this week's Mr. Updates, Care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I'm just going to skim through these, and if anything piques your interest, please check out Lou's video and post because all of the details are right there. First up, Pramod has completed verification on most of the NARC core and started synthesizing to see some real output. So they were able to get the high score table out of it. It's not fully playable yet, but that's really good news if you're a fan of the game. Hotego has added spinner controller support to a bunch of different games, 
And you could build your own spinner, you could buy one pre-made, but I think this is a game changer, no shitty pun intended, because there are so many games where the arcade controls were the way they were always intended to be played. So, and I think for spinner stuff, Tempest is probably the best example. That game is just not nearly as fun with a D-pad as it is with a spinner. So it's awesome that Hotego was able to add that support in. Also, Jimmy Stones has released a cord for the BBC Bridge Companion, which was a 1984 console dedicated to just teaching the card game Bridge, which I remember hearing about it all the time and uh, talking to my grandma about it, but I never played it and I still don't actually know what that is. So maybe I'll try the core just to see if I like it or not. Um, Hotego also said that he finished and released a PDF document of CPS3 schematics and also mentioned that a team, ne- team member is going to start working on a Konami CPU that's used on arcade games like Aliens and The Simpsons. So this is obviously just starting the CPU work, but I think we would all love to see those games available on Mr. Next, there's another bug fix for the PlayStation Core that's CD related and the game Love and Destroy now works. Track 17 started working on the Z180 CPU thanks to previous work from Pramod, and this is used on Toa Plan 2 hardware, so those games are the eventual goal for that. Also, Todd from RetroFrog has released the 3D files for their consolized Mr. Case to Patreon subs, and I have no idea why I didn't write up a separate post for that. Sorry, Todd, I'll get to that as soon as I remember, but if you subscribe to Todd on Patreon and you want to download and print that case, go for it. Hopefully it'll be available for purchase eventually elsewhere. Otago also figured out an issue with the midnight resistance core, and it turns out the CPU runs faster than the 10 megahertz that other games with a similar hardware used, so that was fixed. Awesome to see developers go back and tweak previous cores, by the way. There's also an update to the Centipede core from Jimmy Stones that adds a 400% speed option to the trackball emulation, which is great because if your trackball is slow and doesn't have the option to speed it up, that's that's definitely a cool thing. Uh, also, it, the, it is confirmed that the price of the DE10 Nano is going up. I think we all knew that and should expect it. It was very cheap for such a long time, and with the part shortage and everything, I don't, I don't think it's unreasonable to, to think that that would go back up in price. Also, D3F Mod has their Hi-Fi Blaster board now available to add as an option when you order the Ironclad Plus board. So it's basically a, a, a higher quality analog or digital to analog converter DAC that currently is only being sold with their uh, their Mr. I.O. board setup. I haven't had a chance to look at that one yet. That is one that looks cool that I think it would be fun to mess with. I just haven't had time to pick one up and see. And hopefully if someone local has one, I could borrow it and just kind of check that one out. Also, Robert Pipe, the developer of the PlayStation and Game Boy Advance cores and a million other awesome things, has been teasing work beginning on a new core, but he has not said what the core is yet. So I love the suspense. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate all the all the work that you've been doing. Um, a bunch of Hotego cores have come out of beta and been released to public. Karnov, Chalnov, and Wonder Planet. Of course, if you like Hotego's work, please support on Patreon and get early access. And also that Hotego mentioned all of the basic files for a Haunted Castle arcade core are in place. They just need to work on the CPU. And they're also going to start working again on the Neo Geo Pocket Core, which is pretty cool. Uh, Anton Gale has extracted schematics for parts of the Taito System SJ video board, which is the board that Elevator Action runs on. So once those schematics are complete, it's another step forward towards getting it 
up and up and running as a core. There's also been updates to the Mr. Main core, Neo Geo, and ZX Next. So it, basically, if you want any more info on all of these, please check out Lou's post. And of course, always subscribe to Lou and check out the videos on YouTube as well. Pre-orders for the Time Sleuth are finally back open. This project was basically killed by the part shortage with the FPGA chips not available at all for well over a year, probably more than that now. But their chips are in, they're in production, they should be shipping to customers by the end of March, and the price did have to go up a little bit because the price of everything went up a little bit. Anybody been to a supermarket lately? It's not just the Time Sleuth that's shacked up in price. So it's $120 plus shipping, and uh, if you even think you might want one, I would seriously consider this. And I have to say, a quick personal note here. A lot of times I get comments like, why the hell would anybody want that? But the number one device that I've had people actually apologize about, that's right, people in the comments do have the ability to apologize, and sometimes they do. And this is the device. Because it was so often a comment that was like, well, why would I spend about a hundred bucks on something just to test my panel once? That's dumb. I would never do that. And people have come back a couple of months later and gone, you know, I borrowed my friends. I bit the bullet and bought it and I use it all the time. I get it now. I didn't get it before I owned one. And I, I really think that most of my fellow nerds would want something like a time sleuth. Um, it's not just about testing your main PC. It's about different setups, different converters. You'll, you'll always find a way to use this. Just don't look at it like you're buying a console that you use all the time, like a video game console. Look at it like a tool in your toolbox. You don't use every one of your tools every day, but you wouldn't say, well, I'm not buying a hammer. That's dumb. I only need to hammer in seven nails. Like, of course not. No one, no one in their right mind would say that. And that's what the Time Sleuth is, a really, really handy tool for nerds who use displays or converters through displays that want to double check their setups. So if you want one, definitely pick it up now. There are some other lag testing options that are going to be available in the next year, but none of them are quite the same. Some focus on other things. Some are, might be a little less expensive, but they don't go up to 1080p. So basically, if you buy the Time Sleuth right now, there's nothing that I know of, and I'm being honest about that. There's nothing I know of that's going to be coming out in the next six months that you're going to go, damn, why didn't I wait for that? There's a 9K version that also does holograms. I don't know. There's nothing like that out there. I hope there would be though. I'd love to see, I would love to see a 4k 120 or heck, you know, 1440p 240 version of this, but I don't know of anybody working on that. And even if somebody is, I think the chips are still really, really expensive. So it would be like a thousand dollar lag tester for now. Hopefully that stuff will come down in price and we'll be able to do it, you know, but I think if you're looking for a lag test, a display lag test device, Time Sleuth is still it for the near-term future. Tito from Macho Nacho Productions just posted an awesome video showing off all of the features and functionality of the new Memcard Pro for the GameCube. And if you're not familiar with the product, it's basically a virtual memory card that could assign a new memory card for each game, including each region. It could have just generic bulk memory cards that you could cycle through. It has Wi-Fi support. It's got a nice bigger screen on there. Tito really just sums the whole thing up very nicely. And if you already own one of these for the PlayStation, it's basically the same with just a couple of extra things that are changed on it. So 
honestly, there's nothing I could say here that Tito wouldn't have done a better job of in that video. So please check it out if you're even slightly interested, but I'm loving these things. And of course, yes, there's always going to be the person in the comments that's like, I only own two GameCube games. This is dumb. I'm just going to buy one memory card. And that is the right move if you only play one or two GameCube games, or if you play a couple of games that don't have save features, that's completely fine. And you're right to not need this. But if you're somebody that plays a bunch of GameCube games and you want the ability to do things like each game gets its own virtual save file and have the easy ability to back it up onto your computer, or if you want to transfer your other memory cards to this to back that up, that's just a few of the many features these offer. So this is definitely a you get what you pay for scenario. If this is something that you need, you're going to love it. And if not, then, then you don't need it. And that's totally cool too. The software emulator Dolphin, which emulates GameCube and Wii games, has just been ported over to the Xbox Series consoles. And Modern Vintage Gamer just did two awesome videos showing most of what you would need to know about it. And the overview is that it works great. Please check out both of MVG's videos for all of the details. But I'd like to ask some questions and post a different perspective on this as well. So obviously, if you have a decent PC, you could download Dolphin and run these games right on your PC and have a great experience. But one of the things that, well, actually, some of the things that have always bugged me about doing that is, first of all, if you're a nerd like me and you're glued to your PC all day long, you might not want a game on it. I certainly don't. I like games, but I don't want to be in front of my keyboard and mouse when I'm done working because that's half of what I do when I am working. But on top of that, anybody that's ever messed with software emulation knows what configuration's like. You're always going to be mapping a button or there's always going to be something. And one of the things I loved about the emulation on the original Xbox is because it's a whole bunch of people all coming together to work on one platform. A lot of this stuff was ironed out by the developers before it even got to us. So you'd be able to load up an emulator, throw some ROMs on there, and the controllers were already mapped and the settings were already basically what you would have wanted anyway. So seeing stuff like this ported to a console means that your overall experience could be easier and better just because there's many different people working on it. Kind of the same reason why I also like Raspberry Pi emulation. So that alone is good, but also the performance seems awesome. And if you're looking to go 4K, obviously you're going to want the more expensive Xbox, but this is kind of one of those scenarios where if you already own one of these, you might want to seriously consider trying it out because I just think it could be a really cool workflow for playing playing these games in higher resolutions, rendering them in higher resolutions. But the questions I have are, how does the both models of the Xbox compare to PCs, and what are those specs? So obviously, if you have a $5,000 PC with the latest everything in it, I'm sure it's going to run better. But what about like a $1,000 computer with a 3060 graphics card and a, an older, you know, couple year old i9 processor? Know, is that going to compare or is that going to be better or worse? And also, what is the latency like compared to original hardware? And that's something that I should probably be working on because that's kind of my thing, right? So maybe I could figure out how to work with some people to try to get that testing done. The Dolphin team is working really hard on this, so I actually wouldn't want to do that for a little while longer just because they've been putting out a bunch of updates. And I don't think it's fair to run tests like that when things are still in earlier beta modes. But I would love to swing around to that eventually because... I do think with a lot of the later edition consoles, ones that already have a, a frame buffer built in on the console itself, the potential to emulate them 
at higher resolutions, meaning rendering at higher resolutions, not even just scaling, with the exact same latency as the original console, I think there's some real potential for that. And I think it's there's much more potential for that than there would be for older consoles that just draw direct to the video output. So this is really exciting stuff. And, you know, if you think I'm exaggerating, I, I, I don't know what I could do to convince you otherwise, because this is one step closer to, to really having something that you can't get on original hardware. And that's what's so exciting about software emulation for the, the later model consoles, because one could very easily argue that if you played... I don't know, Super Metroid on an original Super Nintendo with composite video output on a CRT, that you really can't get much better of an experience than that. Maybe on a better CRT monitor, maybe through RGB, but really going on modern platforms isn't necessarily going to be better. It's going to be preference-based. But if you have emulation where everything's running great and there's no added latency and maybe there's even higher frame rates and uh, rendering in higher resolutions, you could definitely argue that playing it on a modern platform is definitely a better solution. So that's why this stuff's so exciting to me, because while I'll always prefer 16-bit consoles and probably some 32-bit as well on a CRT, I'd be willing to bet that I, I'd be playing some GameCube and Wii games emulated through Dolphin on a OLED TV and having what I perceive as a better experience. So can't wait to try this stuff out uh, it's been at least a year or two since i've used dolphin so i should just give it another go around anyway just for the heck of it but but let me know your thoughts if you've tried all of this and uh, and kind of let me know your opinion on all of this because i'm just really excited and you know shout shout outs to the dolphin team for doing such great work before I go, I just want to mention a live stream I did last week with Greg from LaserBear, where I installed a Pico Boot mod chip into a GameCube, as well as a new fan assembly and fan, and the Blue Retro adapter, the entire front controller port adapter that LaserBear was just selling. And I had a great time doing it. I'll give the very short overview so you don't have to watch the whole three-hour stream. But basically, the reason you would want PicoBoot instead of something like a GC loader is simply the ability to run original disks of any region, because then you could boot directly into Swiss, so you could have multi-region support. And you could also load ROMs through the SD to SP2, and I loved the side mount adapter that I got for it, so you could still access it even with a Game Boy Player on and without really even touching the bottom part of your GameCube. It's all accessible right there. If your optical drive is dead, then the GC loader is probably a better choice. Also, if you want a much, much better tutorial on how to install that, please check out one of Tito from Matra Nacho Productions' videos on this. Uh, he definitely did one on the Pico Boot. So I just really took my time. And for me, it was more about hanging out in my bear pajamas with Laser Bear and and making a, an install that looked good and, and really just was as good as I could do it. So Tito's video is going to be better for that. I did show off the blue retro adapter, uh, the whole front piece that Greg was selling, and it, it worked awesome. I really liked it, and that was a very easy installation, comparatively speaking. And I also showed off the Memcard Pro a little bit, but that is also something you should just watch Tito's video on. Basically, if you want to just kind of hang out and uh, and just hang out with Greg and I while we mod a GameCube cool, but if not, 
just check out the links and check out everybody else's videos on it. I think maybe just giving a two minute overview here is probably better than watching the live stream. I just wanted to mention it and also thank Greg. And of course, also thank WebHDX for jumping in and helping me out in one of those points when I forgot something. So it was a lot of fun and, uh, you know, probably not for most people, but wanted to mention it anyway. Well, that's it for this week. As always, thanks to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially thanks to people who support in any way possible, because it is you who is keeping all of this going. So thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.